Welcome back to Homestuck Made This World, the show about critical analysis and contextualization of the webcomic slash illustrated novel per previous part episode, Homestuck. Uh, I'm Michael, and with me as usual is my co-host, Cameron. Yep. Here I am. Yeah. Uh, this is still episode eight of Homestuck yep. Made This World, but it is episode eight, part two. Wow. Wow. Time flies when you're having fun. Yeah, we're just we're just burning right through it, just zipping all through these eight thousand pages of of Homestuck. Only three thousand more pages to go. <laughs> Only. Mm-hmm. And what three thousand pages they will be? Uh, you know, I, I gotta say this from the vantage point of where we are. Uh huh. What the fuck could happen over the next three thousand pages? <laughs> Like what could occur? Yeah, it seems like we're we're gearing up for the end game here, buddy. Yeah, this is um... he said every ten pages for the last five thousand pages. <laughs> this this is some real like serial reading experience, right? <laughs> of of uh, not really having any sense or bearing on how this thing could. Uh, uh, continue to continue to operate as it is and still like be a story Uh uh-huh but um i i mean i guess before we we get into that maybe i should uh just let everyone listening know what's up by doing the summary i'll allow it all right Via chat client, Big U and Little U engage in a long and complicated game of chess that Big U appears to win, though Little U is unfazed. He insists he has not lost, as Big U allowed him a special provision before the game began to reverse the starting positions of the king and queen, which he appeared to do. He now reveals a shitty twist ending. In fact, he did no such thing, but only created false caps for the pieces to make them appear to be their opposites while otherwise playing them completely legally. Gloating, he chastises Big U for agreeing to allow him to break the rules to begin with. The game continues until Little U almost forces Big U into checkmate, at which point she flips the board. On Jane's planet, she continues to hunt for her dad. Lil Seb the Robo-Bunny walks through a transportalizer, and Jane follows him to Purpo, which is currently going to hell from the Draconian Dignitary's Red Miles attack. Jane sees Dirk's dream self already on the scene. He is surprised to see her, and everyone is further surprised by the appearance of Jake English. It turns out that there are transportalizers to Purpo and Prospet in the Frog Ruins, and Jake took the Purpo one after procuring from his inventory his grandmother's fourth wall, which was helpfully shrunken down to carrying size by Liv Tyler slash Terry Kaiser before they were sent off. On future Earth, Roxy does her best to rescue some chess people and is contacted by Big U, who identifies the red murder stuff raining down from the sky as a red miles attack originating from outside the universe. Simultaneously, Dirk is contacted by Little U, who asks him to destroy Lil Cal once more. Dirk refuses, and Little U, who says if all goes according to plan, today will be his birthday, provides Dirk with a present in exchange for something Dirk helped him with. It is Little U's first piece of fan art, showing him and Dirk being bros, and it is a bunch of incomprehensible squiggles. Roxy returns to her room and speaks once more with Big U, who offers her own piece of fan art of Roxy in a neat candy-themed outfit. 
Finally, because she feels that her time is running short, Big U begins to break some of the rules between her and her brother, telling Roxy her name, Calliope. She explains that whenever she is awake, her brother sleeps, and vice versa. If they hear each other's names, the one who is awake falls asleep, and the other wakes up. Calliope fears that her brother will soon be making a final move in their game, and to fend off the worst consequences, she asks Roxy to contact him later and speak her name. Roxy finds all this troll stuff complicated, and Calliope finally admits something else. She is not a troll, but a member of another alien species entirely called Cherubs. Cherubs are solitary by nature, meeting in person only to fight or procreate and Calliope was under the impression that she and her brother had a special dispensation from Paradox Space to play the game with the minimum of two players for the two fundamental aspects, space and time, and the two mysterious masterclasses of Muse, Calliope's title, and her brother's title, which isn't named, but take a guess. Anyway, that all seems shot now. Calliope tells Roxy goodbye and removes her troll cosplay, revealing that cherubs are little green skull-headed goblin children. Calliope seems nice enough, and spends some time looking at all her fan art and leafing through the massive historical tome of heroic deeds in which she's read all about the Alpha and Beta Kids' adventures. Except for all the redacted parts, about some time-traveling demon and his goofy servant who drinks a lot of soda. She shares her room with her brother, with whom, it turns out, she also shares a body. Each leg of the body is bound by a chain, and each personality can only unshackle one leg at a time. This keeps them confined to opposite sides of the room. Calliope goes for a short walk and surveys the desolate landscape of the dead planet on which she lives, beneath the dim light of a red supergiant. The planet is also littered with giant shitty copies of the Statue of Liberty, which basically proves that this is Earth and has been all along. Also, the cherubs turn out to live in what looks like the remains of the meteor lab where Rose, Dave, and the trolls currently are. Calliope prepares for her nap. Little Yu leaves Calliope a series of taunting messages and awful fan art, vowing to paint his words with her blood, in other words, green, and describing in detail the deaths or decommissionings of all the Alpha Kids. Jane is stabbed by the Red Miles on Purpo, causing little Seb to yank Jake back to Earth, where they are attacked by an Alternian dragon that knocks Jake unconscious and throws little Seb into the ocean. Roxy is also killed by the Red Miles, while Dirk's dream self is knocked out by falling debris on Purpo. This causes his waking self to also pass out, and he drops little Cal into the ocean, much to little Yu's delight. In the dream bubbles, Jake's brain ghost of Dirk suddenly becomes his dream self's dream self and interrupts the conference among the other characters to grab Roxy's dream self, which is sleepwalked out here, and punt it back into the session. Roxy snoozes off with the firefly that the mayor, formerly known as WV, acquired back at the end of Act 1, nesting in her hair. Dirk wakes up on Earth and enacts a complicated series of events in a closed time loop to save everyone. What happens is this. Using his rocket board, he flies through the window portal to Roxy's house and finds and kisses Roxy's corpse, waking her dream self just as it arrives on Purpo to see Jane's corpse. Roxy struggles to work up the nerve to kiss revive Jane, while back on future Earth, Dirk uses a miniature transportalizer to decapitate himself. 
On present Earth, Jake is awakened in the ruins of his house by a splash of water, and sees before him Dirk's severed head. The autoresponder, which, by the way, lives in Dirk's sunglasses, I'm not sure if I've said that before, tells Jake all his friends are dead, and he must kiss Dirk's severed head to bring him and them back to life. This isn't how Jake thought things would go between him and Dirk, but the autoresponder says the clock is ticking, and if Jake doesn't do it, then everyone dies. Jake reluctantly assents and kisses the severed head. Dirk's dream self wakes on Purpo, pushes Roxy out of the way, and kisses Jane's corpse. James' dream self wakes on Prospect and takes a transportalizer to the frog ruins, while Dirk and Roxy take the rocket board to the time capsule, which allows them to pop out into the ruins just as Jane reappears back on present-day Earth. They grab her and head to Jake's house, where Dirk's severed head appears from the future before an unconscious Jake, and Dirk covertly wakes him with a bucket of water, completing the temporal loop that has revived them all, though Jane and Roxy are extremely weirded out by the ensuing corpse kiss. All three remaining players enter the game. And then Calliope's brother Caliborn does too. Back at Andrew Hussey's mansion, Lord English teleports away, circumstantially simultaneously, as Caliborn wakes, assuming dominance over the shared body now that Calliope's dream self is dead. Lord English appears in the furthest ring, landing in a dream bubble before an astonished crowd of beta timeline ghosts. Caliborn easily removes his own shackle and deals with the one he cannot remove by gnawing off his leg. Lord English breathes a massive jet of rainbow-colored flame, incinerating and double-killing the ghosts, exploding the dream bubble, and shattering the very fabric of the furthest ring. Caliborn grabs a robotic leg to replace his recently lost one and prepares to enter the game. His kernel sprite flashes wildly between red and green, eventually collapsing into a black hole that begins to absorb everything. The shitty liberties, the meteor lab and a very pleased looking Caliborn, and the Earth itself. In the now broken furthest ring, PM and Jack Noir stop fighting long enough to watch the horror terrors shriek in pain as Lord English's attack slices through them. The singularity from Caliborn's entry begins to absorb its neighboring red star, gaining an accretion disk, mirroring a vision that has haunted Calliope's dreams. Act 6, Act 3, ends. Yep. So some stuff happened. Well, a little scamp. <laughs> that Caliborn. Yeah. <laughs> He's rude. He's, uh, yeah, pretty rude. <clears throat> Not uh, making a lot of friends here. <laughs> I don't know. He's got one friend he likes a lot. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so, uh, uh, rather unusually, I guess, for this show, uh, I'm, I have kind of an order that I want to talk about things, kind of uh, set, a, set a in mind ahead. Uh, so I need to blow this up. Okay. I got to sabotage this. You do? You tell me. Okay. 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 Yeah. All right, do it, do it, sabotage it. Uh, oh shit. Uh, uh, <laughs> shit. Uh, and the rockets red. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, uh, it's just because uh, we're going to get to a point where actually I I I want to give listeners maybe a kind of stopping point. 
Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because the thing that you need to know about this kind of chunk of reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the thing you need to know is the Assassin's Creed was yes. originally released in 2007. Oh, do go on. Uh, it was meant to be a sequel or revitalization for uh, a next gen version of Prince of Persia or pop as it was referred to within Ubisoft. And um, as the uh, developers began working on it, they realized that a uh, kind of a tunnel and pivot point model wouldn't work, which was the mm-hmm. classic design mm-hmm. model mm-hmm. of the pop series or Prince of Persia, as they called it within Ubisoft. And so they uh, began to work on a thing called the Anvil Engine, uh, while at the same time Patrice Desilet and a few other people were working on some broader conceptual ways of getting there. The uh-huh. idea is that it was going to be a little bit grittier and uh, a little bit of a reboot. And eventually they realized, hey, climbing's fucking cool, kids. <laughs> Is that on re- Xbox 360, everyone wants to climb. Is that really the story? Like, yes, it is. It's, it's like, yes, it's, it is. They, but climbing was cool in Prince of Persia, too. But the, there was no free climbing. Oh, it that's was all true. all very explicitly kind of controlled. Uh-huh. And here it was as long as you had climb points that uh-huh. were available, which were on every single surface in the game, right? Mm-hmm. Is that enough of a derail? Yeah, no, I think it was great. Okay. I think it worked out really well. I'll bring uh, it back later. Yeah, good. Um. Yeah, I just I want to give uh, listeners kind of a, a, a stopping point for listening, uh, because this is the chunk of reading where I figured out Homestuck. Mm. Like this is this is the one where I figured out how this comic was going to end, uh, you know, or rather like I, I developed a theory that felt pretty strongly right. And over the ensuing next several years, I turned out to be correct. And so, uh, mm. yes. Uh, if, if like getting that on your own, uh, is going to be something that you prize, then I want to let you know before I, I talk about that because, uh, we are, we are now at the juncture of this show where I am going to have to start like putting a bit more pressure on the discussion in terms of, uh, making my own argument kind of, uh, move to the forefront. Um, because this is, this is the reading where my argument starts to lock together pretty clearly hmm. <laughs> i wonder if i can predict it okay Ooh, can we can we play a fun game where you give me all the you give me all the clues like mr snowman uh and then i try to harry hole my way out of this thing let me think let me think if that's how how that would work um well we can talk about that when we get there i guess uh, okay. because like that, th- that's what I want to save for kind of the last. That's what I want to be the jumping off point. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, Do you want to play a game? Well, maybe. <laughs> uh, It'd be more friendly if you said it like that, wouldn't it? Would you like to play a game? We want to play a game. <laughs> hey, Georgie, you want to play a game, Georgie? Georgie. Uh, yeah, no, I, uh, uh, I think we'll save that for, for later, but I think we can start with the whole deal with all these damn kids and their relationship problems and who boy, where they've ended up plot. There's plot now. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. The, the, uh, real stuff happens. The real, like, humdinger of a thing about these alpha kids, uh, as I said a couple partisodes ago, is that there is so much groundwork that is laid, and then you hit a point, like, uh, you you said in uh, episode 7-3, I think, that you didn't, like, 
uh, you weren't sure how you're supposed to care about these characters or you didn't care about them. And yet, nevertheless, the comic very much seemed to want you to, like, take them seriously, but you had no idea how to invest in them. Uh, and that's because these characters are weirdly hobbled by, like, the like this weird soap opera effect where it is kind of like you approach them as people with relationships and those are interesting and matter in and of themselves and then as you say this this plot just like comes out of nowhere and grabs them and it uh makes this like sort of phase shift uh in terms of like forcing everyone to do things uh that might make them have later other conversations down the road um so what do you think of this well it's a you know it's part of something we were talking about on the discord too uh right after i think that that episode dropped where it's like the this is the the real place where the serial reader experience versus the archival experience reader uh like experience for like character interactions you can really feel it i guess Mm -hmm. is what i'm saying in the sense of like for these characters, because there is so much backstory to them, right? They're like based on characters who fans have been invested in for a long time, uh, but have been in the background, right? So it's almost all fan production, mm-hmm. you know, as far as like what beliefs there exist in the world. Because it is so heavily in conversation with a kind of like shadow discourse that doesn't surface really in the comic very much. Um it, the like mechanisms of investment are like offloaded somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's like a crucial intertext here, and it's really fascinating to see people in the Discord talking about these like alpha kids because like all of their investment or discussion about it is like either stuff I don't know or stuff that is in conversation with like external to the comic stuff. Mm-hmm. And and so it's like you, when you read about them, you really only get like a third of the content that it, that is around them, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and to me, that that's very. We've talked about this a few times, but part of what's going on with Homestuck in a broad sense, generally, you know, and part of the pun of the of the uh, title of the show, Homestuck made this world right. Is like there are things that are happening in Homestuck. And there are things that are happening in media industries and cultures that are happening at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. It's not really that Homestuck made this world, but that Homestuck is being developed and is operating and is emerging into a world in which uh, internet fandom is transforming and our media industries are transforming, particularly to be parasitic of the internet, Mm -hmm. right? Like, ultimately, at the end of the day, part of the mechanism that makes Marvel work is that people are willing to yell at each other about Marvel on the internet. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason you would make a bunch of Marvel movies is people were already doing that, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have a built-in set of investments. Um, and so what's interesting, I, I think, about the Alpha Kids here in a gen- and like what's been going on with them up until this point and then what happens here is it's just like uh, this is the same mechanism that we're seeing with like Thor Love and Thunder right now. Where mm-hmm. like, you know, I haven't seen the film, obviously. Um, I, I think it's coming out very soon, if not right now. Uh, but like... It's a bunch of characters who exist as IP, and every review, positive and negative, that's come out, and there have been mixed reviews, but every review has basically been like, hey, there's a big jumble of characters. They all ping-pong into each other for two hours, and then the movie's over. (laughs) And some people think that's awesome, and some people think that's terrible. 
Um, but it's like the absolute IPification, even though Marvel is obviously already intellectual property, right? But it's a kind of IP imaginary, right? Of like, mm-hmm. let's just take let's take Thor, the lovable goof. Let's take Valkyrie, you know, with uh, her online fandom. Let's just get him in the mix, you know? <laughs> yeah. Let's get Batman in there. Fuck it, you know? <laughs> let's do it. All holds off now. Batman's in Thor, Love and Thunder. Yeah, let's just get him in there, right? Yeah. And like that that clearly to me, you know, just just reading the reviews and reading about people talking about the film and their experiences of it, the people who saw pre-release screenings, that's obviously the only goal the movie is going for. The goal the movie does not have aspirations of like setting up more Marvel shit. It is just like the fandom ping pong movie of mm-hmm. like giving you a million different things that you can reference, which by the way is the previous uh, Waichi film too, right? Like I think people liked it more because it was a little bit novel, but that's the same thing going on there. The movie is not particularly um, plotty, plot, 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 right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, he fought the molten lord at the end? <laughs> Say it ain't so. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so the reason I, I bring all of that up, right, is just uh, that aligns so clearly to me here with what's going on in the transformation into Act 6, which is that all of these characters are discrete. They're all little pieces of... Uh, IP, even though I, you know, I don't think um, uh, uh, Hussey is using that term, but they operate in the same kind of corporate logic, just to be mm-hmm. honest with you, which is like, here are a bunch of things you have investment in. Some of them you have investment in because they were walk-on characters in some other comic that five people on Tumblr know about, but here they are now, and you can write all your explainers about them, except the explainers don't go up on you know, CBR. They go up on the MS Paint forums or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, MSPA forms or on the something awful thread or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's so interesting to me is that the, there is a decoupling, there's a transformation in storytelling here that's going on mm-hmm. in act six that I think aligns a lot with our contemporary media ecology. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think that genre forms, I think that, uh, the attachment to melodrama, I think the attachment to character, all that stuff was going on pre Act Six, and I think that that aligned a lot with like Twilight and Harry Potter and The Hunger Games and all these kind of media objects that really kind of thrived on that at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. And then the classic stuff from the '80s that we've talked about a bunch of times so far. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real transformation I think it's going on in the Act Six is like we are now seeing Homestuck nascently operating in the mode that, in fact, most of our media are going to operate in for the next ten, fifteen years. Um, you know, we're living in right now, clearly in the comic, you can see that we're living in the world that Homestuck made, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, you can produce a a Marvel movie that is just like an hour and 45 minutes of riffing and then 15 tight minutes of plot at the end. And then the movie's over. (laughs) And that's what the first, this chunk of act six has been, right? Mm -hmm. It's like just a shitload of riffing with all our lovable cast of characters. We're all invested in some of them new, some of them old. And then, wouldn't you know it, we wrap up the time loop timeline all at the end, and we get a big bad who's going to get defeated in the next thing, probably. Or is going to blow up the world. Who gives a shit? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, The so, in the Something Awful thread, uh, a thing that has come up a couple of times uh, when people are complaining about Act 6 in particular uh, is people saying... Uh, you know, I just, I, I can't believe we did, like, we really did the full reset, right? And, mm. uh, we, uh, I, I can't stand, like, people are dropping off, right? People are stopping reading. Yeah. 
And they're saying things like, I just, I, I don't have it in me to sit through the full, like, uh, meandering introductions of four new characters. Mm-hmm. And I don't need to learn about these Eternals and <laughs> that Miss Marvel and a fucking multiverse. Are you kidding me right now? Mm-hmm. Phase four? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this jokingly, but also this is literally the discourse that's happening right now. Yes. And so, like, the a response that comes up in the thread to this that is endlessly funny to me is people trying to argue back against that position being like well they aren't new characters like you know these characters from acts one through five as if like the (laughs) versions of like grandpa uh nana uh bro and mom we saw in act five are in any way like immediately portable to what is going on right now right uh now clearly those those sort of earlier versions of the characters mark a kind of uh you know the the they 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 set kind of a stage right for the versions of the characters that we're getting now and that's kind of the key term right is versions of the characters but there are people in the thread uh who are just asserting that no these are just the same characters so technically you haven't been introduced to any new characters so like what are you complaining about which is a wild position to take to me (laughs) they have the same names (laughs) retroactively because he talks about them in the book commentary as like jake and everything every time grandpa harley does something stupid uh in the book commentary Uh he's like jake why did you do that Wow. Wow. Oh, you know what I will say? Just, uh, you know, I know we got an argument to to move through here uh, mm-hmm. that you want to get through. But I will say it's actually pretty interesting that um, I think Jake is finally coherent. Yeah. By this part of Sode. Yeah. Let's talk about in, that. In the, in the sense that, like, uh, the his his verbal, you know, his oldification mm-hmm. or whatever, right? It finally makes sense. So, again, maybe it's a hot tub problem. Maybe I just got used to it. Uh, but I think that it's a little bit more consistent now with his gadzooks and whatnot. Yeah. Well, he gets a little more, as a character, in this in this sort of spate of reading, I think, in particular, he gets a little more defined. Like, he starts uh, uh, sort of talking back a bit more, in particular with, like, the, the scene with the autoresponder, where he is, like, you know, very unhappy with the situation he's in. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, you get a you get a more of a sense for him as like a person who has reactions to things rather than uh, I don't know the the thing that he was before, which was kind of just like a person to be talked to. Uh, he's still a little bit of that, but it's like more confined to jokes. I'm thinking of when the autoresponder goes into its thing about how uh, it's decided to rename itself Lil Hal after yeah. Hal 9000 from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh and uh, it says something, it tells Jake something like, uh, you know, that's a movie you haven't seen that you probably wouldn't like. And Jake responds, that's not true. Uh, because one of Jake's character notes is that he likes every movie that he sees. <laughs> so I just love right. that response of, you probably wouldn't like that movie. That's not true. Uh, I would like that movie. <laughs> uh, and, you know, one of the other things that's happening in the thread is that like, uh people are on the one hand glad that all of this relationship stuff has finally paid off in kind of uh an actual moment right an actual scene where characters are doing things 
but they're also uh, some of them, right? And there's one person in particular who hits this really hard, kind of becomes sort of the focal point of, of this side of the discussion. Um, someone who's extremely weirded out by all how this all works out with Dirk and kissing the severed head and everything. And they explicitly... Uh, parallel it to uh, the thing that happened back in Act 5, where Equius has the robot body for a, um, a radia that then, like, makes her fall in love with him, and then they kiss and everything. Um, and I think that's really interesting because it, like, sets off, like, it's like uh, Homestuck has been quietly layering or, like, laminating all of these sort of like plot points and character types that sort of echo each other. And it's like a, a pyramid, right? You start really broad and then all of them uh, start like as it narrows down, all of these little things start getting like smushed together uh, such that this scene with Dirk uh, and or like Dirk and Jake in, in uh, the severed head and everything like uh, it's like a hit. It's like taking a match hitting the the like powder keg and it just like rec uh retroactively or like you know works backward like this scene activates all of these previous strands of discourse because it like compiles them into one right dirk simultaneously becomes uh equius and Vriska, right like the the people in the thread are thinking through the the like ethics or the morality of this character's actions uh, through the lenses that they have developed for prior characters. Um, and so, like, I, that in and of itself is really fascinating, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. uh, people aren't just having kind of this, like, moral discussion and evaluating it. Uh, everything is getting routed through the story itself, and uh, the story seems sort of designed to do that, right? Like, the is Dirk being manipulative? Is this really gross and creepy? Oh, but, like... Uh, he, he wasn't really being manipulative. He had to do this because there's a time loop. And if he didn't do it, then everyone would die. And think about, uh, how Dirk is like clearly, you know, uh, uh this hasn't come up textually in an explicit way, but like, here are all the places where I've marked in previous chat logs, uh, where you can see that Dirk has a controlling personality and we're seeing like the subtle development of that controlling personality. And I'm sure we, we can look forward to that being addressed uh in some way in the story going forward right like addressed explicitly or like critiqued right um mm -hmm. so that is and then there's and the other thing that i'm completely leaving out here right is is the fact that this is like a you know a little same-sex romance and so uh people who are complaining about it are also often being accused of complaining about it specifically because it's gay, even though that's not necessarily what they're saying. Some people, it's clear that that's what's going on. Um, but like, if you, if you voice concerns about this, that becomes a way for people who are defending the comic to like push back on you and be like, oh, do you really just dislike this because uh, it's, it's like boys kissing? Uh, and then mm -hmm. furthermore, right, because by this point, we've already gotten uh, 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 Calliope and who we still at this point are calling little you, but Caliborn, right? People are now using like uh, the perspectives of Caliborn to critique other people saying like, oh yeah, you just want to see all the parts with murders, huh? Right. You don't want any of this romance mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, so uh, uh, again, touching on something you said in a previous part episode, uh, the comic like 
provides these scaffoldings to aim the readers at one another uh, and to cause them to argue with one another in really fascinating, complicated, and intense ways. Well, and and not just that, right? Uh, you know, or, or that plus it gives them the explicit tools and words to use, yes. right? Like it, it's you get the the whole comic is dependent on a series of prepackaged images and ideas, right? Like that's what makes the first four acts or so fun. Is you know the thing that eventually gets named circumstantial simultaneity is the callback, right? Mm-hmm. Like it is the it is the notion that there can be a structural replication that is fun to discover and engage with. Mm-hmm. And like everything else in the comic, that has now made a meta move, right? Where the the thing that is circumstantially simultaneous is the fan reaction and the character reaction. And fans are doing with those things the same things they did with like, you know, the kiss you know, replication or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it. I, I, I think probably, I don't think this is unique to Homestuck, although I can't think immediately of a good example because, uh, you know, of this and another um, media property, if only because not every media property is meta in this way, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the, the, the asking you to look for the thing over and over again, it, it's a critical part of like intellectual property media. Mm-hmm. You know, it's find all the infinity stones. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, what are all the things that could be the infinity stones? Uh, and it, it's just so interesting to see that kind of get folded back into not only here's you looking for all the infinity stones or what could be them or, or is, is that big cube an infinity stone? You know, it's not just that. Mm-hmm. It is now you need to be ever vigilant in in your interactions with other human beings in the world about game properties Mm -hmm. it's like people being like you're (laughs) you're the red skull (laughs) (laughs) you're you're making the same argument as the red skull although i guess this does happen right this is the whole (laughs) uh uh like current right-wing adoption you know there's been this discussion of uh i mean of a couple things right uh you know one the um uh far right adoption of the punisher logo right right that that came out of uh, military uses and PMCs in the the wars in the Middle East uh, that has then migrated in weird ways back, back to the United States, um, and then also the the seemingly new adoption of the Empire from Star Wars mm-hmm. as a you know a, a purposefully um, right wing symbol set of symbols right people are using the uh, the the Imperial flag is showing up at right wing events now right. And so, yeah, so I guess maybe maybe that does actually occur quite a bit. Um, and it just took me a minute to think of some examples. So anyway, uh, yeah, I you know, I think in a general sense, I'm just going to say it. Mm-hmm. You probably shouldn't aim. I, I've said this before, but you probably should not aim your audience at one another like a weapon. Yeah. That seems not cool to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's fascinating. Sorry, just to go back to one thing that you just said before. It is so fascinating to see all of this like discussion and a bit of this has come up in the discord too uh, around Dirk and like, what's he doing? Is he a manipulator? Is he good or bad? Whatever. Um, because I see no stakes for that so far. Mm-hmm. 
mean, it, it meaning uh, he could be manipulative, I guess. I, you know, I can see the case for that. I can also see the case of that, like, autoresponder just doing whatever it wants to be. I mean, it is little Hal at this point. Right. right? That's not, that's not exactly a uh, statement of, like, dependence on some other person. It's, in fact, the opposite. Um, but also, like, who cares? <laughs> like, does it matter at the, uh, like, at this point, right? Presumably this has to go somewhere, otherwise people wouldn't focus on it so much. But, like... I it I, I don't know like half of the trolls are seemingly did within the text worse shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, for it to work right now, you have to kind of be invested in the character in and of itself, right? Like you have right. to have this approach to the character of like wanting the character to be good or wanting to be more critical of the character. Like you, you have to have uh, almost some investment in how the character could be perceived before anybody finds out how the character actually exists as, as you know, a finished textual object. Right. Uh, and that is, I this is this is true, I think, of all of the alpha kids to one degree or another. As you said, like so much of these alpha kids uh, is reliant on what people in the fandom were speculating about. And they were speculating at every possible opportunity, right? From from their names to their typing styles to what their planets were going to be to, uh, you know, broad personality uh, types and, and, and characteristics and things like that. Uh, and as you've said, that that has a kind of activeness to it for uh, a serial reader that it really doesn't for an archival reader. And yet, nevertheless, the modes of understanding these characters that were developed serially uh, persist for archival readers in, mm-hmm. you know, wikis and, and uh, Tumblr archives and, and things like that. And so they per- they form these kind of paratexts that continue to inform how people in the fandom may be engaging with these characters, uh, but in this weird way where uh, they're not really, like, engaging with the Homestuck text, right? They're, like, uh, or rather, to put it a different way... Uh, Homestuck is a text that is already that is built with the wiki already in mind, right? Like it it expects you to after you finished reading a bit of it uh, to go over to the wiki and look at some stuff and like stop before you get some spoilers or whatever. Well, it kind of demands that you do, uh, if only because if you don't, then every conversation with another person who has read Homestuck will be extremely alienating, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, I think this demonstrates really clearly that the you know, because like a lot of people have said, even when we started the show, right? Um, and I, I still occasionally will get a tweet or two that that suggests this, or like a quote tweet of one of our things that suggests this of like, uh, yeah, you just can't, you can't read Homestuck as an archive. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's impossible, right? You don't get the experience. And I think, you know, I, no one's articulating in this way, but now that we're like really in it and in the mix, I think a lot of what that means is that, or, you know, the intent behind that statement is that the fandom pressures, uh, you know, they're, the headwinds of fandom were so strong that they, that they push even in the moment of initial reception, not even re- being reworked into the comic, but just in like, what is on that wiki about Dirk? 
is so heavily influenced by like fan expectation mm-hmm. and then whether or not the comic fulfilled that or not that you you can't get a sense of where things are coming from one way or the other without it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that extremely weird. And I, you know, uh, and even people having conversations in the Discord about where Dirk supposedly is right now, I'm like, oh, okay, like fine. I don't I don't have strong opinions about this <laughs> this little inventor kid, right? right? Like <laughs> he he is but some little goof mm-hmm. <laughs> uh yeah uh, there's uh, dirk becomes one of those characters you know like like friska in a way uh where there's a lot of strong feeling around him um and i mean we we, we, we can continue to dig into that uh as we go forward uh but just to like flag some of it here like he is a uh angsty queer kid who uh is trying to work through some stuff and feels very lonely, right? Uh, is constantly putting up fronts. And so uh, there are all of these, mm-hmm. like, w- similar to Vriska, right? All of these ways that you can read past what he is doing textually to, like, manufacture mm-hmm. the interiority, right? Like, how must Dirk feel? Because Dirk so very rarely tells anyone around him uh, straightforwardly what he is feeling. Um and then there's all this like really interesting uh convolution of the autoresponder which is a version of himself at 13 right a like image of his brain uh that has under like you know become become an ai uh but is like undertaken its own history like in in time with him so it is like arguably developed as a personality in slightly different ways and uh, as you say, uh, one of the discussions that's happening is like, well, did this whole plan, how much of that was the autoresponder really planning it out? Because multiple characters have kind of expressed uh, reservations about the autoresponder and the autoresponder uh, during this whole like uh, uh, fuckero uh, is... Wait, 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 wait. I thought this was a fuckery. Oh, okay. Maybe it, is, maybe it is a fuckery. I can't remember how those work out. Mm-hmm, got it. Yeah, check check out our Dreamcatcher episode in two years or whatever <laughs> <clears throat> on just King things. Um, but anyway, uh, the uh, like the autoresponder is talking to everyone and to the non Dirk kids is being like, "Hey, don't do whatever thing," and then the kids go ahead and do it and textually you can't really pin this down you can read it both ways right is the autoresponder being basically sincere telling like jane not to go through the poralizer to to purpo um uh but it can't really do anything because it's you know some glasses uh or is this all part of its plot to to orchestrate this thing between Dirk and Jake? And it has uh like it it's like sort of putting up like token resistance, right? Knowing that it's going to like sort of push Jane onward or that Jane's going to have to do it anyway because of time loop bullshit. So these are the types of uh interesting conversations that happen around Dirk where like, you know, agency is being discussed and like who is actually doing things here, like uh is is uh, the autoresponder like an exaggeration of Dirk's own manipulative or puppet master tendencies and that sort of thing? Um, and we'll have more to say about that going forward. But uh, just to say, like in the case of Riska, right, all of this is set up to uh, make unwinnable arguments on forums. <laughs> 
I mean, do you think, you know, this pure speculation, Mm -hmm. this is truly do you think, right? But is that just what's going on in Act 6? Maybe. Is it just just the recognition that fandom discourse drives the product in such a way and is so clearly correlated to the success of the product that Hussey is inventing all of these different characters that are just internet arguments? right like it's that's the ultimate cynical thing to say but good god that is what is happening in a way that is just so extreme compared to what anything that's come before right well i i so i'm not going to rule that out that deeply cynical reading but i will also reaffirm what i've said before which is that there does seem to be in the background here a story that hussy wants to tell um because like certain plot like and this we will talk about this eventually but like uh all of act six is also hussy revisiting the plot of wizardy herbert um and i'll outline how that works <laughs> but like this is a story that hussy tried to- that is the wildest thing a human being has ever said to me yes i mean it's true right <laughs> you you see i can't believe you're smoking a pipe while you said it to <laughs> i can't believe you took it out of your mouth uh, so artfully <laughs> Uh, and this is this is one of the things that's really uh, interesting to me about Act Six is that Wizardy Herbert as a story like was written sort of like it was you know as a sort of fun little like novel project and it was unfinished it, it never got uh, concluded um, but like it wasn't being written in dialogue with a fandom in the same way. And that has really significant effects, obviously. We will talk about that again when we get to the section where I can really talk about Wizardy Herbert. Um, but uh, it does put me in this position where, like, as a as a kind of, like, you know, scholar researcher, it looks like, on the one hand, Hussey took this story that they wanted to tell, uh, tried to tell it again, and in this new context, also added in all of this, like, weird uh, back and forth, uh, uh, like... Uh, really customizing it, right? Uh, uh, Fine-tuning it and then deploying it for, again, internet arguments. And uh, just to, like, you know, set up a segue here, another great example of this is the reveal of Calliope and the idea of cherubs. (laughs) Yeah. Those are not in the comic anywhere before this, right? I didn't just miss that. Uh, There is a bit where when Hussey is uh, facing off against Lord English, uh, they say something like, uh, you know, I believe in magic with like all the conviction of uh, the cherubs in the metric ton of special stardust they consume every day or something. Mm. Um, Mm. That's that's it. Right. Basically. Right. That's that's when when the reveal of cherubs is dropped. That's the thing that people go back and screen cap and put into the forums. They're like, look, it was all planned. Uh, But otherwise, yeah, no, you're you are correct. This was intended to be a rug pull. Got it. Got it. Well, uh, yep. (laughs) We got some cherubs. (laughs) Yeah, I I do like the like taking off the troll cosplay. Uh huh. That's funny. Yeah, no, that's that's so cool. Uh, and Hussey uh, historically like uh, told people. So Hussey noticed that lots of people were getting spoiled about updates through Tumblr because if you were on Tumblr and you were a Homestuck fan, you were following the Homestuck tag probably. And so every time there was an update, uh, if you went to Tumblr before you had read the update, you would see people reacting to the update, and that would 
uh, spoil whatever surprises there were or might be for you. And so Hussey actually goes out of their way to provide um, this image for people to put on Tumblr in lieu of the actual reveal of Calliope. And I'm going to send this to you in Discord. Um which is just a version of Calliope as her troll Sona, like with full makeup and everything, uh, rather than the image you do see in this shot normally, which is uh, her wearing the fake horns and having like a little skull face and uh, cute little green swirls on her cheeks and everything. She's just she's just a little little goof. Yeah, I really hate the design of Lord English. I know that I've said that before. <laughs> But I really hate it. And also, it's just Jigsaw. It's just Billy the Puppet now. <laughs> yeah, so, that, I mean, that's that's a thing that people are, like, they, for for the audience, that's not a negative, right? They're like, ah, it's Billy the Puppet. Like, Saw oh, reference on lock, right? Let's, let's move forward. They love this. Well, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> or rather... I wish they looked any other way. <laughs> I mean, this is this is also really interesting, right? I would uh, it, it's in some ways like deeply against the spirit of the project, but I would really love to know exactly how this worked out. Like, did uh, the Lord English design kind of grow slowly through like Hussey's own thinking and fandom speculation and just become more and more ridiculous, uh, which then resulted in the creation of these cherubs as characters to explain like how Lord English could be a giant skull monster? Uh, or did we start with the skull skull monster as like point one and then build out everything from there? Um, as I said, like, I think, you know, the point is you can't know that. That's like the point of Homestuck. Mm -hmm. You don't know where these things start and stop. Um, but it, I, I appreciate the, the skull children thing, uh, if only because it is such a hilariously effortless way to answer the question, why does Lord English look like a giant skull monster? It's because he was a skull monster little babby. Well, wait, does that explain him? <laughs> I mean, no, no, no. I'm just, it explains the skull part, right? Oh, I see. I see. There's lots of other things going on with Lord English, I guess, right? That that uh, uh yeah, that he's the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> the fact that he's the Incredible with Hulk, a machine yeah, gun with a machine gun. They're not a machine gun, I guess. He's got like a like an assault rifle. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there's also uh the thing that I think is notable here. Uh, that is not as much remarked upon in in the discussions that I was reading. Um, the way that this reflects on fans. And like the readership. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that Hussey has said before in like Form Springs uh, is that, you know, uh, Homestuck makes fun of its fans, but it's all like gentle satire or something. This is this is the way that Hussey has formulated it before. Um, and this was back during like Act 5. So and, and when I say Act 5, I mean sort of like early to mid Act 5, like, you know, high, high troll times. Uh, and this was particularly about sort of like the internet archetypes of all the trolls. Someone had asked about this um, and Hussey was like, yeah, like this is this is all sort of like gentle ribbing with the audience. 
And I suppose I am I am willing to believe that, right, that that is sort of Hussey's belief. Um, and at the same time, uh, in a lot of the ways that Homestuck engages with its audience, and in particular now, as we're moving into to this point of the comic, uh, all of that gains an edge. And I feel like there's a little bit of an edge here to making uh, the kind of ultimate fandom uh, uh, analog character a like weird bifurcated personality skull child locked in uh, their bedroom. Mm -hmm. And like, it may be gentle satire, but let us like press a little bit on the notion of satire. What does that mean? Right? It means uh, outlining sort of faults or um, shortcomings and trying to draw attention to them. Uh, this is this is a, a thing that we talk about on our uh, Fallout podcast uh, quite a bit, or like Critical Play Show, Too Much Future, um, because those games uh, have this reputation of satire, and so we talk a lot there about like what is satire and what is parody. Uh, the fact that people can very rarely tell these apart, I think, is indicative of some sort of like you know contemporary issue of ours, uh, and it's an issue that uh, Hussey falls into quite a bit. Hussey says uh, everything is satirical when there are certain things that Hussey is referring to that are clearly parody. Um, but this is where I make a difference, right? Where I make a distinction is someone who knows the history of genre. Um, and has studied that, uh, is that satire is like parody is like making fun, right? Exaggerating and sort of goofing. Uh, whereas satire is in fact about like underscoring faults, like trying to point out social ills. And mm -hmm. uh, one might wonder, what are the social ills being underscored here by making the readers of the comic uh, sort of represented as, again, like alien skull children who uh, are the same person but also hate each other and are locked in like this deadly game to the death. And are also uh, built into the system of the game within the comic as the, you know, the master classes or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. that these are the two ultimate positions that one could occupy according to the rules that they themselves, little skull kids who are the bad guys, <laughs> are telling us, right? Right. I mean, it's sad, just, right? Just schematically, I do want to say that really yeah. quickly, right? It is fascinating to me how much, like, the classes and things like that uh, have... Um, uh, like real weight within the Homestuck analysis community or whatever, mm -hmm. given that the people who are telling us about them are explicitly the bad guys. Mm -hmm. it, it's, I mean, it's like if Red Skull showed up and is like, well, we all know that the Avengers, there can only be five Avengers <laughs> and uh, one must have guns and one must have uh, a shield and one <laughs> must have pulsar lasers. <laughs> and then we're like, well, you know, if you look at the Avengers in 77, they do have it. And if you look <laughs> if you look at the Avengers in 91, they do have it. So this is the eternal Avengers formula. Right. Um, and I'm sure that we still have a lot of comic to go. I'm sure that more will happen with that. But it, but just kind of schematically thinking, you know, zooming out a little bit and thinking about that. Um, it, it, it's really fascinating to take um, the strategies of analysis from a character whose analysis is bad, mm -hmm. like that the comic is saying is bad, mm -hmm. and then and then just flatly applying it to the rest of the comic. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I would do that. Yeah, this personally, I I think it. So one, 
it is extremely validating for you to come at it this way, uh, because no one who is reading it in the thread really seems to get that. And as as you're saying, like it really seems that in the fandom, um, the 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 class stuff is taken as uh, basically you know open ground. Uh, I think because the understanding is that Caliborn represents the bad side of the fandom, right? The bad reader. Right. And Calliope mm-hmm. represents the good side of the fandom, the good reader. And so you can trust the things more or less that Calliope says. Uh, and obviously, like, Caliborn's a piece of shit and, like, <laughs> it's fucking with everyone constantly. Um, mm-hmm. He's, he makes some great art, though. Right. <laughs> Oh, we got to talk about that moment of like comparative analysis in a minute. Yeah, I, it. God, that's the. It's the point where I messaged you and I said, "the this the way that this comic treats its fans is just brutal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's just fucking brutal." But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, we we have this. Like, I think it is interesting that you are taking Calliope as as being a little bit villainous here. Um, and I'm, she's the other side of the coin. We've we've right? I, we've had the elaborate two faced metaphor through the whole comic. Mm-hmm. To Harvey Dent is not good, <laughs> yeah. right? Like like the like Christopher Nolan lied to you, y'all. It's not. I believe in Harvey Dent is insufficient. What I believe in Harvey Dent comes from in The Dark Knight Returns is the realization that inside Harvey Dent, if you get rid of Two-Face, if you reduce it only back to the perfect and good, whole, complete, these are all in quotation marks, Harvey Dent, you know what you have? He's still fucking (laughs) Two-Face. He's still the same guy. Yeah. Well, notably, right? All of this. So Mm -hmm. I have the sort of the same feelings about this as you. Uh, In particular, like the thing that really does it for me is the fact that like Calliope is presented as literally a costume that Caliborn wears. Mm, yeah, right true. like yeah uh now they are they are they are like personality wise distinct characters uh but we think here of the chess game that opens mm-hmm. this reading mm-hmm. where caliborn's entire shtick is that he put costumes onto the chess pieces uh and underneath they're just the chess pieces that they looked like all along so uh here we have like when when calliope goes to sleep she takes off her jacket and it's caliborn's shirt underneath which has this you know like use his u symbol on it which is like a mm-hmm. u with a little like red tilde over it um uh and uh i i know i'm like really spitting fire here because uh like this is going to go in a different direction right or not quite a different mm. direction but like um the distinctions between these characters are in fact going to matter right for for the plot going forward um of course yeah but reading it in the moment and this is something that i you know want to emphasize through this show and constantly is like uh you know when when calliope was revealed it was like wait a minute like is is this all like part of this weird chess game where uh uh you know mm-hmm. it's it's the worst thing possible underneath um right. what i want to say also um is that some of the class spec stuff uh, i think is ushered along by hussy who does not in the q and a's that they do ever really dismiss it right hussy tends to validate uh questions about classes in fairly limited ways, not in like uh, uh, even in sort of like the the snarky ways that they sometimes do, but uh, 
people are writing in constantly asking about like, what does this class spec do? And da, 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 how does this all work? And Hussey will be like, well, you'll probably find out when we get there in the comic. Um, but in general, like uh, it, it actually in this chunk of reading, I think we have what is the very last Q&A that Andrew Hussey does um, hmm. possibly ever, I think. Um, uh, wow. Yes. Like uh, 2012, uh, summer 2012, there are no more uh, that I have in my notes. No more. I have the, uh, no more in these archives that I'm looking at. Um, this is kind of the last one. Uh, and someone writes in asking about like the passive active stuff for all the classes and, and sort of all this mm -hmm. stuff. And then they ask, seeing how much of Homestuck is thought up beforehand and also how much of it is spontaneous, it's hard to tell whether you planned out some sort of pattern uh, specifically for the passive active players within each Spurb session. And Hussey says, you know, Spurb was basically, uh, as a basic game, was planned out entirely before Homestuck started, uh, but huge elements of it were uh, added sort of midway through as the story developed. And this included God Tier and all of the, like, importance of the class spec stuff, right? Uh, like, the kids apparently, I guess, were always going to have titles, maybe, uh, but the class spec stuff was never going to weigh as heavily, uh, or was not initially going to weigh as heavily. And so that's something that really, like, spins up in the middle of the comic. So... On the one hand, Hussey out of text seems to be encouraging this, uh, but also the text itself uh, is insistent on how ambivalent and weird uh, this type of uh, engagement with the text can be, right? Um, Hussey talks about about it as like a patch, right? Like, uh, and this is this is interesting too, right? Like, uh, they talk about it as a patch uh, to the story that uh, changes it. So they're thinking about it in terms of a game. Um, and this aligns with other stuff that they've said before about, uh, like, I mean, the, the way that the logic of Spurb works is this, this computer logic of, like, programming um, means that uh, the things in the game operate like software constructs uh, in that, like, you, you boot up a, a program and uh, the program runs as if it's been running forever, right? Like, uh, th there is, like, once the instance happens, like, it just runs and it runs as if it's always been there. Uh, okay. Right. Right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> like this, this way of trying to use, like use someone's never had 200 uh, <laughs> Google Chrome tabs open at one time. <laughs> well, I just, I think it is any of which have deep memory leaks that slowly <laughs> grind your computer to a halt. It is so fascinating to me, like how the poetics of Homestuck very specifically, and maybe uh, in this case, like Hussey's uh, uh, poetics in general are like digitized or like mechanized. And like, what does yeah. that mean? What does it mean to think through telling the, telling a story as if you were working with a computer or like writing a computer program? Like, what does that buy you? And what does that lose you? Um, and that's like a general question. I don't really have things in my pocket there. Uh, I just want to underscore that like this is a highly unusual way to think about writing the story that you're writing. It is like a, an artistic choice. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it has consequences, but also speaks to I mean, listen, right? Someone who comes out of media studies, one of the things that that you learn if you do like uh, uh, any sort of like extended uh, course in media studies is that. 
uh, with every new medium, people start to reconceive like their own bodies and their minds and the way the world works in terms of that medium, right? When recorded sound was invented, uh, people immediately began to talk about the human brain as if it were a record that recorded things physically onto it. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and now we live in the age of people thinking about brains as computers and as working like computers and so on. Um, so, you know, what are the consequences for kind of disseminating this uh, uh, technicized view of like the human body and sort of human creativity? You know, what does what does that get you in the long run? Because, um, like, I don't know, I think that's important to, to, to wonder about. Mm -hmm. uh, and in this case, right, like, uh, what does... What are we thinking about or saying about the fans if the fans are represented in the text by uh, two children slash a child uh, locked in a room, like trapped there, right? Completely sort of ignorant of the circumstances of their own existence. And like what mm -hmm. you do is uh, as, as this kind of person is you get on the computer and you either yell at people or you like praise them and try to get them to be your friends, right? There's a moment very early on where uh, in, in Calliope's little introduction where she looks at all her fan art up on the wall, which is again done by a uh, fan artist, Shelby Craig, uh, she looks at that and uh, it's it says, um, you know, these this is like fan art of some of your favorite uh, characters. You mean friends because like they're they are ostensibly real people to Calliope. And yet she's also thinking about them as characters in like a story mm -hmm. because she has this book on her desk that like tells the entire story of Homestuck up to this point, except for the parts that have been mysteriously blotted out by someone who makes big nosed smiley faces in the margins. Who could that be? Honk honk. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I do, I do like uh, when she discovers the book, or she's reading through Rose's book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't care about how this gets here. Like, I'm sure we could warp our brains into thousands of awful shapes trying to figure out the timeline loops here. I don't care. I'm sure someone will tell me at some point. But uh, I do like that it's been redacted by... It's been redacted by... Um, Gamzee and uh, and just in case you didn't couldn't figure it out, he's drawn clowns everywhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it, it it is very funny. Uh, and I mean, there's also um, so there's the page that uh, in speaking again, like how like fans like take things up or like what fans do with them and how does the comic talk about them. Uh, just before that, and this is on page five one zero nine. Uh, Calliope opens the book, which is the one that Rose has been writing on the meteor, right? Like this is, this is the connection there where Rose has been yeah. like taking down all of these notes. Um, there was a scene in the previous intermission when Carcat and Dave got into a fight. And when they did that, they were like trying to write in the book and they were both holding like the same, uh, pen. Uh, and they, there's this whole scene, um, that, uh, is called penis Oija, because they're like treating it like an Ouija board. Like they don't know who's like moving it around, but like Dave is making it like draw little penises. And so it's just like all of these scribbles and all these little dicks. And uh, Calliope is looking at the page uh, and it says, this page has always baffled you. You have stared at it long and hard, trying to decipher some sort of hidden meaning behind what appears to be pure chaos. You are sure such meaning is there. It is always there when it comes to this tale. Think again what we said in the previous partisode about uh, uh, 
using Homestuck as a totality, right? And trying to to treat every single part of it as significant. Wait a minute. Something has just occurred to you. This drawing style is highly reminiscent of your brother's, which until recently you had never seen before. It is almost uncanny. His inscrutable squiggles, his penchant for arbitrary, completely bad. And this goes on for like three paragraphs as uh, this entire like, and, and this is clearly like, Hussey seeing the fans do things like this, right? Find little details like uh, wh- this little reflection in the coffee cup. Oh my God, Gamzee is putting troll blood into the coffee machine, right? Uh, the the apophenia uh, that we've talked about before of like over-identifying patterns. Uh, and Hussey, you know, sort of pulls that out here and pokes fun at it. Oh, oh, I this this is seems so much further than poking fun to me. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, it's just like hey, you when you try to find, I mean it it's it's this amazing double move, mm-hmm. like such an an assholeish double move on the part of a creator here, right? On one hand, fans, when you find um, things across the comic that are replicated uh are uh you know doubled uh, resonate with one another generate meaning from one another on one hand that is a metaphysical property of this world mm-hmm. called circumstantial simultaneity it is in fact uh, a keystone of the operations of the universe that you're you know looking through your little uh window at mm-hmm. on the other hand also when you do that you're just looking at dicks on a page. Mm-hmm. You're just watching, uh, like the goofiest little gremlin, Carcat, mm-hmm. of course, and uh, getting ruthlessly bullied. Uh, in scribbles that mean nothing. Mm-hmm. Truly, they mean nothing. They have no meaning other than maybe a little bit of an in joke. Because Dave, mm-hmm. again, an audience or a, a creator stand-in character, by the way was just drawing dicks Mm -hmm. to bully some other guy. (sighs) When you do that, when you derive meaning from it and attach it circumstantially, Mm -hmm. simultaneously, when you do that and you align these images on the page together, you're just interpreting dicks. You clown. You goof. You gremlin. Like, I don't know. It just, I, that, I mean, like I said, I, I had to message you. I was like, fuck. <laughs> like, I just can't, I cannot imagine being this hostile. Like, to me, it's just extremely hostile. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not, it, it's not goofery, whatever. It's like, it is explicitly saying that when a, it's taking a character who is a fan stand in mm-hmm. and saying when the fans interpret dicks, they are just goofing around. They're doing something that is worthless and valueless. Mm hmm. No, I guess this could come around the other way. What we could find out is that it is, in fact, circumstantial and simultaneous. And that this does, in fact, have something to do with the world's worst art <laughs> from her brother, right? Like, yeah. that could be true. Right. I, you know, and I don't know. Like, there, we got thousands of pages to go. But currently, as it stands, when I got there, I was like, this is maybe the most, like, brutal thing that is in this comic so far, including creating two characters who are fan stand-ins. Uh, that both exist basically to call people who spend hundreds of hours dedicating themselves to your art project uh, idiots yeah. and assholes. Uh-huh. Um, 
I don't know. It just seems, I don't know. It seems fucking rude. Here's the deal. Uh, I've said this before. If I had such a controversial and uh, frictional relationship with my audience that I did develop, by the way, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's not like this just happened out of nowhere, right? It's been courted. We've talked extensively about how the ways that fans engage with the comic are mediated by the comic, mm-hmm. right? Even in these moments, it's being mediated by the comic. Uh, if I if I had done that and I found it so deeply unpleasant, I would simply just stop doing it. I would just stop making the thing as opposed to elaborately dunking on people who dedicate their lives to my work. Yeah, it, it raises it raises some questions. Um, does that get at uh, what you wanted to talk about? The sort of like uh, I can't like the comparative move you said yeah 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 yeah. when you sit and you compare yeah when when uh, when a new panel comes out uh you know uh dear homestuck reader and you go back and look at act two and you're like oh my gosh it's the same thing that happened you're just looking at dicks Mm -hmm. you're just mistaking dicks for meaning Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's uh it's one of those things that I think is very difficult to parse because I agree with you. It does feel kind of hostile. And yet so many of the Homestuck fans kind of roll with it. Um, there are definitely people who are like, oh, my God, I'm so sick of the you know, people who are saying who people who are really objecting to like the the Dirk Jake thing. Right. Are also mm-hmm. saying, like, I am so fucking sick of this thing. Like, uh talking about like how much it hates its fans or like delving into all of this crap about uh like class specs and stuff right there are definitely people who are doing that um but by and large uh the people who are continuing to read the comic just sort of like skate over uh the more hostile interpretations and maybe that's like what we call being a charitable reader um but as i said i kind of agree with you that um there is there is an edge to all of this that was there when I was reading it the first time and is still there. In fact, uh, I, I almost feel like the edge has gotten stronger with with time. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I guess two things. Let me say, uh, you know, to, to maybe soften the blow there. Mm-hmm. Number one, it's it's a comic that is often joking with its fans mm-hmm. and it would be easy to read this as a joke. Mm hmm. Right, like, like I can totally if uh, if you wanted to skate over it and just be like, "Hey, look, look at what's going on here. We're getting poked at a little bit." Mm-hmm. That totally makes sense to me. Like, it, 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 it's not the end of the world for sure. It just reads as very hostile to me. Two, it's got to be flavored. I mean, I can't go back in time, right? Mm-hmm. It's definitely flavored by the fact that I know that Hussy has said that they feel like they made a cult. Uh-huh. <laughs> Right, you know, it's hard to like, you, you can't, it's hard to bracket that information out, although I probably should in some instances, right? Mm-hmm. But like, well, buddy, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, it seems like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. If you, it, Number one, I, obviously, I think very clearly, Homestuck fans are not a cult. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff that cults do that they don't do. Mm-hmm. They're just uh, really engaged. Sometimes in ways that are extremely negative. Mm-hmm. Hence the the audience stand-in stuff here, right? Uh, like all fandoms, right? Mm-hmm. There are people who are just negatively very engaged. They're not unique in any way in that in that case. Uh, but the other thing is like the comic, Hussy, a human being, is sitting down and writing a comic that is that is demoing, demonstrating. Ways of being a fan. Uh-huh. 
And when you do that, and you create a bunch of negative pathways to being a fan, a bunch of people are going to take the negative pathway to being a fan. Yeah. Which is not to say that, like, Hussey has done anything wrong, right? I'm not, if, uh, you know, people have done, you know, even what we've talked about so far historically at this point, being doxxed, uh, you know, all the, like, extreme negative shit, that sucks. Like, I'm not in any way um, saying that that is okay or good or that Hussey did that to themselves or anything like that. Please do not misinterpret me as saying that. Uh, the only thing I'm saying is, like, you, if you give people pathways and you tell them explicitly, here are the ways that you can engage with this object, and some of those are negative, you are, you are opening a door to particular kinds of negative interaction that some people are going to go very far with. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to know that. And maybe this is a thing, right? This is maybe what Homestuck, uh, uh, when Homestuck made this world, what it does is it demonstrates that very clearly. Mm-hmm. That if you don't want to open the door to extremely negative interactions, you have to be very clear and explicit about what kind of interactions you do want to have. Um, and being like the internet trickster, you know, Maddox style stuff that we saw at the very beginning of the comic, ultimately that opens up a lot of negative, you know, uh, uh, routes for animus. And ultimately, you know, if you look at a lot of those people that pioneered that comedy, I wouldn't say they're like champions of good vibes on the internet. Mm-mm. Some of them aren't even alive anymore mm-hmm. as, as we, as we've talked about. And so, uh, yeah, you know, I don't know. It just, this reading really brought a lot of shit to the forefront to me that contextualized a lot of things I've seen around Homestuck and have not experienced. I was like, oh, okay, well, here's like where that gets uh, folded back into the comic. Yeah. Well, I guess on that note, unless you have other things you kind of want to point out or say here, we can we can move into like the, the final leg of this discussion uh, where we can talk about Caliborn entering the Caliborn in general and Caliborn entering the game. Um uh, sort of anything you want to say, because this is also where I'm going to have to like put up my little my little like flashing road sign. Um, well, let's talk. Can we talk about the teens actually for a second? Okay. Like what they do. All right. Yeah. You know, just like plotty plot plot mm-hmm. plot ways. Uh, so uh, they all enter the game in this like elaborate set of of dependencies. Right. Uh, it's very plotty plot plot. But also not a lot happens, weirdly enough, mm-hmm. like in the sense of like, it's kind of the same interaction that happens over and over again. Um, I'm sure that this is like kicking rad for the fans. Oh, yeah. Where they like to get to see all these kids like zipping in and out of time and getting on the rocket board together and all that kind of stuff. Uh, watching that kid teleport his own head. That was wild. <laughs> People. <laughs> so this was uh, this actually might be in terms of like serial reading experience. Um, this is worth saying uh, uh, both. This is how this works. If you're not reading along is we get a flash called uh, Dirk synchronize. Uh, that starts out up to the point where he severs his own head. Then we get uh, conversations, right? Regular pages between the severed head, the autoresponder, and Jake. Um, and then we get the second part of the Flash, which is uh, Dirk Unite, uh, where he closes the loop and completes all, all of the game stuff. Uh, all of this was posted in a chunk, um, which I think is notable. Uh, so was uh, just prior to this when Caliborn uh, is killing all or like watching all of the kids die and like talking about it to Calliope. Um, that actually was posted on what I think is still today the most like productive quote unquote day of Homestuck, like the most number of pages. All of those hmm. deaths were posted at once. 
Um, and I think that's notable because it does suggest to me that Hussey realized at some point, like, oh, my normal thing of like doing this kind of one chunk at a time, uh, pausing, uh, works the fans up into a lather, right? A character died. And there's not going to be an update until the day after tomorrow. That character is practically dead forever. Nothing is ever going to change. Time to, like, scream on Tumblr about this. Um, hmm. So there does seem to be, like, some strategy there in, like, posting all of these big dramatic uh, deaths in kind of a chunk that, uh, weirdly enough, by giving you more of it softens the blow. Or, like, uh, gives the, the readers kind of more time to... Uh, like sort of sit with the idea or like develop an idea that it's going to go somewhere. And so, yeah, like people, people like lost their minds when Dirk severed his head. Uh, then there was the conversation and then they lost their minds again when it all turns out to be part of this awesome plan that gets all of these kids together in, in literally the same physical space, which is a thing that has yet to happen with the four members of the original oh. cast. That's right. Right. And so uh, this is a thing people have been wanting for those characters forever. Right. Since since uh, characters started, since like John entered the medium and it became clear that like all of the other characters were going to enter the medium with him. Um, people have been yearning for uh, the scene where all of the kids finally get to meet up in person. Uh, you know, uh, uh, at the very beginning of the reading experience, this uh, is constantly coming up as uh, a hoped for problem sleuth callback of pose as a team because shit just got real. Um, and that has not happened yet at all. But when we get it or like the closest thing to it, it is with these new characters, and that is really interesting to me, right? Like, that we get the thing that everyone has been wanting from the beginning, but with the characters uh, that are more novel or sort of, like, less established, right? Yeah, and, and like, you can really, like, it's all fandom times here, right? When they're all on the, uh, what you call it, on the hoverboard flying around, mm -hmm. they're all, like, got different different facial expressions so you know that they all are reacting to it differently mm -hmm. you get to see their uh you know i don't know it's like some real stuff and two here uh on fifty two fourteen, you get the roxy dirk handhold mm -hmm. like and that's that's just the shot mm -hmm. and it's like this is just built for the fandom mm -hmm. people love it when people hold hands <laughs> roxy loves it too you get to see her face yeah <laughs> and how much she loves flying around and look if you you get me on a rocket car or on a rocket board. I'm going to love it too. Yeah. Now, I have no idea what's happening when uh, Dirk heaves her through this sun or whatever. Uh, excuse me? <laughs> on 5231? Uh, is she being thrown through the dream bubble? Oh, Yes. So Roxy's dream self has wandered out into the furthest ring. Uh, this is right. like the, the the Dirk in here is like the dream self of Dirk's dream self, right? Okay. Um, uh, you know, this is this is a thing that Dirk can do, apparently. Uh, Look, I, I, I read French theory. I will believe anything you tell me. <laughs> uh, so he like uh, pops her out of the dream bubble, but he can't leave when he tries to leave his hand mm -hmm. like starts to disappear. Uh, so mm -hmm. Dirk like is throwing her back toward the session, uh, but cannot himself leave the dream bubble. Right, because he's a dream self of a dream self. I know, and then, then the mayor. Yeah, the mayor loses his little firefly. 
Yeah. And just he's like reaching out, like <laughs> looking sad. Um. All right. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to note that that this is like a big, big moment. Mm-hmm. You know. It really is, right? People people are so jazzed to see all of these kids together, even if they're not the kids that people have been waiting to see together for, uh, you know, ever at this point. Yeah, and you get this big, like, hero shot, mm-hmm. 5250 of <laughs> Spooch and the Severed Head. Yes. With a big, with a big uh, uh, volcano erupting in the background. I've seen enough movies. I know what this means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was a thing that, like, the autoresponder talked about. Like, uh, this is a thing like that that was foreshadowed, like something about Jake, like, oh, he just wants to, like, be standing on a mountain. Like, I know how he is. He wants to, like, uh, be standing on a mountain, holding a skull and kissing a dude or something. Mm -hmm. So, uh, cool. Yeah, cool. It happens. (laughs) Finally. Yeah. All right. Well, you want to talk about Caliborn? Uh, yeah, sure thing. Um, is there anything kind of like you want to say, uh, before I get started or (sighs) he's just a little nasty gremlin. Yeah. He's awful. (laughs) I don't, uh, I, yeah, no, probably not. I don't think I have anything I want to say about it. Uh, here, can I make my call for how the whole thing ends? Okay. This is just a call. I, I, I truly don't know. Mm -hmm. This is not like a fun thing. I've not read any more of the comic, anything like that. I did know Caliborn's name mm-hmm. as of the last episode. Oh, yeah? Partisode. <laughs> yeah, because you accidentally said it. Shh, I edited that out. I know. Well, I'm I'm uh, getting oh, out no. back from behind the curtain. No, no, no. To reveal to them. Yeah, to reveal to them that you accidentally said it. And uh, and I thought, what the fuck is Caliborn? I thought, what, who are you talking about? And then I found out. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, that, that, I'm I'm hussy now. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know what it was, <laughs> and then I did. Um, uh, I think the end of this whole deal mm-hmm. will be that the universe has got to get wiped out, written clean, because the cycle is bad, mm-hmm. and the ability of Caliborn to like interact with all these people and to even be a fan is the problem Mm -hmm. right so like the ability to look at the thing and evaluate it or whatever fandom itself becomes the issue Mm -hmm. and the only way to wipe it out is to obliterate the official narrative right so like get rid of all the universes Mm -hmm. or you know the big frog blow that bad boy up you know, classic hussy inversion, right? The thing that we thought we had to save is the thing we got to get rid of. Mm-hmm. You got to do that. Okay. And then the only thing that remains is like infinite dream bubble fan production, mm. which is a thing that cannot be read in its infinity. And so therefore is safe from Lord English bullshit. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, well... Uh, we'll see how that plays out. You will see how that plays out. And also you specifically, Cameron, will know at least somewhat how that plays out as I get ready to tell you like the thing that I figure out historically at this point. Wait, can, can, can we pause for one second? Yeah. I don't know if we should do this. We did, in fact, do this. Hey, it's just Michael here this time. I've got some pretty important stuff to explain, and after the mind-blowing revelations I just laid down, 
Cameron was too busy boggling vacantly at the godless blue sky above to participate in this little recording sesh. You see, past the point where I made this cut before I started talking to you just now, he and I had a long talk, and eventually arrived at an understanding. The explanation of the shocking truth I learned about Homestuck in July of 2012, critical as it is to my reading of the comic, has been recorded, but out of fairness to all first-time listeners who may be reading along with us, Cameron convinced me to reserve the full reveal for a later date. In the process, however, he agreed to hear what I had to say, and now, though he cannot and will not speak of it, so shaken is his sense of reality, Cameron knows something about the end of Homestuck, something that I assure you is 100% true and accurate, and will be fulfilled and entirely vindicated in the full span of this little comic. If you think that lessens somewhat the value of our exercise in this show, don't worry. Because even with my sterling promise of total factual accuracy, there are still many, many surprises in store. And Cameron took a metaphorical bullet for you. In a way, he saved you. That's how much he cares about all the people who listen to our shows here at Ranged Touch which you can learn more about if you go to rangetouch.com. Yes, this is still an ad break. That didn't stop being a thing that was true or anything. Go to rangetouch.com, and you can get some timely updates on all of our projects. But if you want up-to-the-minute updates, go to twitter.com rangetouch, or subscribe to our video programs at youtube.com rangetouch. Cameron and Danny have Mages and Murder Dads about games in the Baldur's Gate lineage, as well as a Patreon-exclusive monthly podcast. Cameron and I do multiple shows where we talk through the histories of media franchises from a critical perspective, such as too Much Future, about the Fallout series, or just King Things, about the books of Stephen King. Cameron and I also do Game Studies Study Buddies, where we talk through books of academic game studies, and our latest episode on a book of lectures by the media theorist and sociologist Stuart Hall might be very interesting for anyone who wants to know more about our critical methodologies in Homestuck Made This World and elsewhere. We also have a bevy of bonus episodes and exclusive treats available through Patreon support at patreon.com slash rangetouch. Most recently, for the Homestuck Made This World bonus episodes, we discussed Saw and its unusual philosophy of plot twists. But we've also talked about Homestuck fan adventures like Promstuck and The NeverEnding Story and, of course, Con Air. Kicking us even a few dollars a month helps us devote time to making the shows that we do, creating this bonus content, and it's all extremely appreciated. You can also tell your friends about our shows, since we spread entirely by word of mouth, uh, and as it happens, through reviews. So if you head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review that is also funny, there's a chance that Cameron will read it out loud on an ad break. Not on this ad break, of course, because, as I said, Cameron is struggling to reintegrate the pieces of his fractured psyche, and I wouldn't want to bogart anyone's shtick or anything. It's unbecoming behavior for a good host. So I'll just see you off now, with the reminder that my true, 
perfectly correct prediction for the ending of Homestuck has been recorded, and you will hear my announcement of it, and Cameron's subsequent reaction, as they actually occurred at an opportune future moment when the narrative circumstances before us render the magnificent operation of my own critical acumen less volatile. So now, back to the show. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Isn't that something? I, it's, it's something. <laughs> it, is, it is truly something. Here's going to be the hardest part. That whole thing, that's like getting hit in the head with a hammer. Uh-huh. You know, there's just a lot going on, and the body's not built for it. <laughs> and, uh... The hardest part about this is going to be not bringing this up constantly <laughs> between now and like January, whenever this matters. <laughs> oh, I know. Uh, this is this is literally like the thing that I have been waiting to to tell you since uh, we started the show. <laughs> but it's so much better to keep it uh-huh. right because this is going to be this is the ultimate homestuck move is to make make a hard. You know, uh, you know, uh, in uh, tabletop terms, a hard move, mm-hmm. <laughs> but only reveal it mm-hmm. months after the fact. <laughs> that's that's the that's the the true thing. Jesus Christ! <laughs> I guess uh, uh, I don't know. Like, I what else do we want to say then about this moment? Um, people in the thread are. Wait, oh. wait, wait! Hold on. Are you telling me now we're back into episode eight too? Oh yeah. Okay, now we're back in. Yeah, we didn't. Okay. We we there's still a lot here to talk about. I think that people want to hear us. I, think I'm about. just making sure. Yeah. I'm making sure that we're no longer in January. And now we're in. No, now we're in eight two. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Caliborn, huh? Yeah, a uh, little asshole. Um, mm-hmm. uh, people are kind of. Uh, I mean, not kind of. People are really psyched to finally have a villain, like a or like to to sort of like see where Lord English. Uh, like the fact that like we finally figured out what's killing the horror terrors and it is in fact lord english uh that closes the loop for a lot of people Mm. they're like oh finally we've reached the end game um and other people are like straight up recognizing something we've talked about through this like oh this is uh this is the bad fandom right like like uh Mm -hmm. like is like whatever whatever is going on in kind of like the big plot sense um, this is, this is clearly like the villainous side of the fandom being fully expressed, uh, you know, as opposed to say Calliope who, uh, appears to kind of like roll with things or like wants to build things. We have someone who only wants to disparage and destroy. And now he has be- been given some sort of supreme power. Uh, mm, and he's blowing up people's fandoms. Too. Right. He is blowing up the dream bubbles, which are like the representative of the fandom. Uh, so, like the the what I called the jealousy of the Alpha timeline becomes right. particularly embodied in Lord English, hmm. right? Yeah, I you know I'll be honest, I don't really understand the stakes of basically anything that's happening here. I mean, I understand that there are stakes, mm-hmm. but in terms of like what the output is, like I don't what what's the big red sun going into his disc? Blah blah blah. What's all that? Yeah, I mean. At this point, who the hell knows? Um, <laughs> oh, is that? Wait, is that where the red miles come from? Uh, I'm not going to confirm or deny that. 
Uh, okay. But I will say that uh, I personally, historically, uh, am really into this update because it, uh, you, well, I just explained all of that in, in uh, January. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, to put it differently, like uh, the stakes for me are clear, right? This is the meta level coming home to roost. Like the the argument right. here appears to be like you, the bad fan, the bad reader, you are destroying the fandom and you're making it a worse time for everyone. Now, the other part of this that is immediately apparent to me uh, is that like uh no one is under any obligation to like route the desires of the bad fan into the story. And so like, what is, what is the game hussy is playing here by having this character become empowered in this way? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You don't, you don't have to entertain the bad fan, right? You can just banish the bad fan. Mm -hmm. Like narratively, right? You can just like whatever they're, I, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, I, I think I put it in this terms too, but right. It really is the, uh, it's from the Gary Allen fine episode of game study study buddies, right? Like <laughs> yeah. it is the resolving the table problem of, of your role players inside of the game rather than just having a conversation with someone and saying, Hey, um, I don't like this. I and mean, obviously you can't do that when you have millions of fans, but you don't have to fold it into the plot of your, of your thing. It is interesting. I mean, you did not confirm or deny, but you know, speculation here, because I truly don't know. Uh, if, uh, if, if this is where the red miles come from originally from this like dead sun and it's like wiggling around everywhere, then quite literally the destructive interruptive force is just the comic itself channeling the rage of the bad fan into whatever plot useful mechanism that it has, uh, mm-hmm. which is yet another meta meta jump. Of weird stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, did we talk about in the last part of Sode how cool it was for the little uh, Midnight Crew guy to be like, he'll never escape the miles? And then like, yeah. do we talk about how cool that is? We did not talk about how cool that oh, it's is. It's fucking cool. What's cool about well, it? Well, the, the way he says that, he's like, they'll never escape the miles. And he like does the gesture and they're like wiggling around in his head or behind him. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And then we have Caliborn here who is just like constantly repeating that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not as interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I, although God, his fan art is funny. <laughs> I love it. I, there's something so insult to injury about folding in the fans you hate as their own character, and then also making them shitty at art. Yeah, I love. <laughs> I love that. Like he's the, the, the. It's called Dirk. This is us. Is the file name, and then <laughs> yes. uh, you pop it open, and Dirk is like, "What the hell am I looking at?" Because it is just truly like. It's it's as if you like had a cat like sitting next to your uh like tablet and like the cat's tail was whisking back and forth across the tablet while Photoshop was open and it accidentally drew something. And then there's like a sexual exploration happening in the background that's unclear <laughs> to anyone but Caliborn. Right, it's because he uses uh Roxy and Jane's colors mm-hmm. and <laughs> He's like, they're being intimate down there. And it's just like these weird little scribbled piles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's good. It's funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of all. You know, I just I was like, oh, yeah. Like by this point I'm in the comic even pokes at this, right? It's like halfway through this reading, I was like, oh, yeah, they're the same person, you know, and he's mm-hmm. got to like get summoned or whatever. And, uh, and then he does. He does get summoned. Yeah. 
Although yeah. I guess I'm interested in this, like, uh, what's this, like, weird no space in which all of the act uh, green things, uh, the, the curtains are floating around. Right. The, the, the like, yeah, the curtains outside of Andrew Hussey's house are, like, floating on these giant mechanisms above the ocean. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know where that is. Yeah. I mean, uh, the the fandom has some ideas about that. I can say I will I will say this because I won't consider it a spoiler. Like, it's not terribly important. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like this this other space, yeah, right? Yeah. It's Andrew Hussey's house, right? <laughs> um, but it is an interesting visual, right? We have uh the uh like the three acts that have been completed already, or like the you know the the accent intermissions or whatever like floating over the ocean and then we have lord english's like giant flashing sarcophagus sort of like floating in front of them Mm -hmm. kind of moving toward the screen uh and that's intercut with caliborn lying on uh the bed that uh, he and calliope have which is called a sarswapagus because there's this egyptian theme uh there's some stuff to dig into here we'll talk about it uh, later um uh, but, uh, you know, it's sort of like cutting back and forth between like Lord English approaching the viewer, uh, and then like the camera zooming in on Caliborn until Caliborn, uh, wakes up, opens his eyes. He has red eyes, unlike Calliope who has green eyes and his little, the little cheek swirls, uh, when it's Calliope, they're green. And then when it's Caliborn, they turn red. So then he wakes up at the, the moment, like the music really kicks in, uh, and, you know, sh- uh, purely through editing alone, right? Through sort of like the cuts back and forth uh, of circumstantial simultaneity uh, tells you like, yeah, this guy's Lord English. Yeah. Right. I don't know how or why. Right. <laughs> right. You know, like, <laughs> why? <laughs> like, that. Like Dirk is not bro. Right? Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, Grandpa is not Jake. They're not those people. So why is it? it I'm sure it'll be explained mm-hmm. overly at some point. <laughs> I do have a question, though. So he obliterates all these like uh, dead people. Are mm-hmm. they just gone? Yeah. Right. And this is again, this is like where the stakes are for me now. It's like, oh, right. Here's how like because you said uh, a couple part episodes ago, like once the dream bubbles get introduced, it's like all stakes are gone. And I kind of had the same feeling. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking it was so brilliant at this moment. Uh, like this is how you bring the stakes back in. Like Lord English is destroying the dream bubbles, the thing that lets all the characters continue to hang out. Right. right. He makes death final. Yeah, which is, uh, you know, it's a funny thing to do. Mm-hmm. Because, again, it doesn't that efficiently uh, limit the cast of characters? <laughs> you know, not not going back to my uh, initial call or anything, but wow. It certainly does seem every time the character cast expands, it's got to contract equally. Or maybe even more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh one of the things then that I guess I maybe want to end us on. So I did some reading about anti-fandom and anti-fans uh, sort of in, in preparation for at least some of the conversation that we were going to have here. Uh, oh, wait, hold and on. I Can I ask it- one more question before we get to anti-fans? Sure. What? So his, you said this during the summary, but but I, I need a little bit more explanation. So what is this big black hole? 
it's a it's a singularity it's a black hole i know but what but why i guess why is it oh. i guess i should be asking uh, you. Be- because that's how the story goes this is a thing that uh doesn't really make a lot of visual sense it's one of those moments in the flashes that um <clears throat> is kind of just like visually and sort of logically unparsable uh and is only going to be clarified later at some point when hussy like tweets something about it or replies to a tumblr post mm. Uh, but basically what happened is we, uh, Caliborn tried to initiate the session. The kernel sprite came out, but there were, I, so th- this is sort of unclear either, uh, because it is a one player session and that's against like Spurb's design, uh, the, the kernel sprite is like broken in some way mm-hmm. or because he like, uh, fucked things over with Calliope. Uh, we now have two kernel sprites, one green and one red. Hmm. Note those colors, by the way. Christmas. Uh, yeah, Christmas, uh, and, you know, alternating lines of text in some sort of magical book. Uh, anyway. Oh, uh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the the uh, kernel sprites, like, uh, collapse into each other, mm. and then it makes this uh, this black hole. Got it. Um, right. And then we have this giant red sun, and, you know, like, uh, the other obvious parallel here that of, of like, you know, question mark importance is the fact that we have a giant green sun somewhere else in this comic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So the, who the hell knows what's happening here? Mm-hmm. Right. Like this is this is all weird. It could be anything. You know, uh, uh, and everyone something that I haven't thought of until this very moment when you said it is that uh, mm-hmm. green sun zenith. is a magic card. And it's for summoning oh. things from somewhere else. Oh, anything you want. If you pump enough hmm. energy into it, or uh, mana, in the terms of the thing, <laughs> isn't that notable? Yeah. So I, I, the reason I asked that question is uh, that uh, because this is a void session, mm-hmm. or the kid, the alpha kid set is a void, and and then it created a void, mm-hmm. like a black hole. I was like, oh, maybe that's related, but it seems like not. It seems like this is some other extra gamic whatever who gives a shit that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the the story yeah. will progress. This having been true, and it doesn't really matter what the explanation is, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, we're we're gonna find out. Um, you might not be off the mark. Uh, okay. we'll, we'll talk about. We're we're gonna have a chance to talk about like different types of sessions again in the future. And I know there are people who are listening who are interested in me saying some thoughts that I've hinted at about that. So hmm. look forward to it. Um, so uh, just then on the topic of sort of like the the anti-fan right mm-hmm. or, or sort of the bad fan as i said i was doing some reading about this trying to see kind of what the where the research stood in fan studies and i you know learned some really interesting things uh but the main thing uh that really jumped out to me was this 2005 article by jonathan gray called anti-fandom in the moral text uh television without pity and textual dislike um, in broad strokes, this is uh, like kind of coming at the beginning of uh, fan studies, really like looking at anti-fandom or as they sometimes talk about this kind of like taking displeasure in the text because fan studies, uh, you know, by dint of the name uh, is sort of dispositionally guided toward like people who like the thing, obviously. Um, and Gray's article is about... Uh, the the website television without pity 
which was a 2000s like TV fandom website where people would get together and like discuss like all of the currently airing shows uh, uh, in like sort of their own sub forums, right? Like, oh, you know, after you watch the new episode of The Sopranos, uh, go to Television Without Pity, um, check in on the recap, because this was the other thing that uh, Television Without Pity was famous for is they would do uh, snarky recaps of the episodes, Weirdly enough, very similar to kind of uh, the riffing that uh, I would do with my friends when we were watching Smallville or whatever. Where, uh, it's like, oh, here's what happened, and then here's like a silly joke. Um, this is what uh, Television Without Pity became very known for. Uh, and uh, Gray looks at uh, Television Without Pity as a place where you can study anti-fandom. Uh, people who watch shows because they dislike them or want to complain about them or elements of them. Uh, and that's all kind of it, its own thing. Uh, but the conclusion that he comes to that I think is really interesting and sort of worth repeating here, um, and it comes as, as sort of a surprise to him, it seems like, for most of this uh, argument, uh, fan and anti-fan are approached as kind of like two distinct things, right? Two distinct categories. Uh, and after spending enough time looking at what anti-fans are doing, uh, which is to say, you know, uh, the types of conversations that they're having, the sorts of ways that they're understanding the text, uh, and even as they're articulating their displeasure, all right, he, he realizes like, oh, structurally, the conversations aren't actually that different from people who like things. And so, like, he, he points to... Um, this like examples of like when when a television show is going to get canceled and people like start a campaign to get signatures on a petition or something. Right. Uh, this is in some ways not at all that different from people who really hate the Star Wars prequels uh, also starting petitions to stop the Star Wars prequels from being made. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of a conceptual problem. Uh, and uh, Gray goes on and says, quote, <clears throat> After all, although pleasure and displeasure, or fandom and anti-fandom, could be positioned on opposite ends of a spectrum, they perhaps more accurately exist on a Mobius strip, with many fan and anti-fan behaviors and performances resembling, if not replicating, each other. And I think that this is true. Right. I think that there are just ways that people engage with texts and sort of the emotional content of those engagements can be different. But like sort of the forms or structures of those engagements can be very similar. Um, and I think uh, uh, not to put too many cards on the table or overplay my hand or anything. Uh, I think this shows how uh, inadequate the idea of fandom is uh, to talking about what happens when we deal with media objects. Because it installs a division in personality uh, and in kind of practice that maybe doesn't exist. And I think that this is something that Homestuck on some level might be aware of, right? By having uh, Calliope and Caliborn being this weird, like, dual mind shared body thing. Uh, <clears throat> and at the same time, uh, it's a thing that Homestuck seems dead set to insist upon. Right, that there are good fans and there are bad fans, and I'm going to show you what good fans do versus what bad fans do. Um, 
And I think we can get something more out of this if we actually refuse those terms, if we uh, uh, work to, uh, you know, deconstruct the binary, as it were, uh, to, to get at what might be happening uh, uh, at a, a more substantial level uh, in these discussions, if that makes sense. So you're saying uh, fan, anti-fan, unhelpful. Yes. What we really need to talk about are what? Mo- modes of attention. Mm-hmm. Okay, I buy it. Yeah, yeah I don't do I fan so. studies. I, right. I got, I got, I got uh, no uh, chariot in this race. Right. Well, and like uh, to be clear, also, like I'm not saying you shouldn't call yourself a fan of something or like fandom is bad, <clears throat> but um, more that uh, I think fandom is a particular thing, right? It's a particular notion. It's a particularly historically situated construct Mm -hmm. uh, that relies on a whole bunch of things to have happened in history. Uh, And if you try to route all of human experience through the idea of fandom, where and we live in a moment where more and more like corporations, companies, media properties, like want to do this, right? They figured out that there's money in this. Um, I think that this like uh, uh, narrows uh, your uh, ways of thinking about and engaging with with the text, right? Uh, uh, to only those things that are maybe uh, the loudest and or the most profitable ways. Hmm. So I don't know, Some, something something to, to think about. <laughs> It's interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't have any uh, opinion on it yet. That wraps it up. Unless you have like other little details that you want to observe or questions you want to ask. <sighs> I don't think so. I think people are going to have a great time in six months. Yeah, I, I think so. I think that's going to be a lot of fun for people. Uh, but, you know, that's that's six months from now or whatever. Uh, but it was true the whole time. <laughs> it will be true the whole time. Yes. <laughs> um That's it for episode eight, part two. Next time, we will be continuing with episode eight with part three. Uh, I would like you to read up through page 5,511. And yes, if you're an old hand homestuck, you know what's on the horizon for us. And I want to emphasize for you, I mean it. We're reading all of it. So good luck. Great. Great.